When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. I agree with you that there were lots of, you know, divisive comments, especially and unfortunately about the press. We found out via tweet early this morning that Mr. Trump was had decided to cancel. When I first heard that he was tweeting about something that was on this broadcast, a number of tweets last night, I kept thinking, doesn't he have like a briefing book on ISIS to be reading at 10 yeah, o'clock? Welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. On Trumpcast, we laugh nervously and talk in confident, declarative sentences to hide the fact that inside, we're emo freaks. Because the Electoral College has spoken and we have ourselves a president. That's President Donald Trump. President, President Donald President. Um, I feel like the Fonz when he couldn't say, I love you. President Donald Trump. I have to work on that. Today on Trumpcast, we're looking at how Trump's leadership might change what was formerly known as the free world, but also the unfree world. Ian Bremmer, the president of the Eurasia Group and columnist for Time magazine, is not pulling punches. He says the era of American global leadership is over. He says instead of a superpower that wants to impose stability and values on a fractious and valueless global order, the U.S. has become the single biggest source of international uncertainty. But Bremer doesn't lay this trouble at the feet of Donald Trump. What he says doesn't partake of a great man theory of history or some Satan theory of history. He says it's not as though Trump will fail to hold the world together where his predecessors have succeeded. Instead, he's a little fatalistic. He says given the rise of other countries who are confident enough to shrug off U.S. pressure, as well as other factors like the ability of smaller powers to punch above their weight in cyberspace— This moment of America's declining leadership was inevitable. And now it's up to Trump to navigate this new world disorder. I'll be back in a moment to talk about all this with Ian Bremmer. But first, here are the tweets. We did it. Thank you to all of my great supporters. We just officially won the election despite all of the distorted and inaccurate media. If my many supporters acted and threatened people like those who lost the election are doing, they would be scorned and called terrible names. Bill Clinton stated that I called him after the election. Wrong. He called me with a very nice congratulations. He doesn't know much, especially how to get people, even with an unlimited budget, out to vote in vital swing states. And more, they focused on the wrong states. I would have done even better in the election, if that is possible, if the winner was based on popular vote, but would have changed campaign differently. I have not heard any 
of the pundits or commentators discussing the fact that I spent far less money on the win than Hillary on the loss. Joining me on the line is Ian Bremmer, the president of the Eurasia Group and a columnist for Time magazine. His latest piece for Time is The Era of American Global Leadership is Over. Here's what comes next. Welcome to Trumpcast, Ian. My pleasure to be with you. So you say we've got about a month left of American (laughs) international leadership. It's in its final weeks. We're counting it down in the holiday season. That leadership has been a constant since 1945, but it is going to, you say, end with the presidential inauguration of Donald J. Trump on January 20th. Why are you saying this? Well, look, it's been eroding for some time. I mean, we have allies all over the world that for a number of years now have been looking at us and saying, can we really count on the United States? You saw that with the Philippine president, uh, Duterte, uh, you know, a couple months ago before Trump was elected, uh, saying, hey, the future's China. It's not Obama. It's not the United States. Uh, I'm, I'm going to switch my relationship. You saw it with the U.K., uh, and telling the Americans, no, actually, China, we want to do more work with them. So it's, it's been coming. Uh, but let's be clear. If you look outside the United States, the only people that thought Trump was a good idea was like, you know, Putin, Kim Jong-un, and like Viktor Orban in Hungary. Uh, th- these are countries that actually want American leadership to fail. They want the end of American indispensability, the end of American exceptionalism. Um, with Trump's election, I mean, America first. This is, you know, very much the idea that the United States does not want the obligations of either multilateral institutions that we set up or of our alliances that have served us, you know, sometimes very well over the course of many decades. I was at that you know, Republican convention when he said, no more globalism, we're focusing on America first. Well, you know, that, that sends a very strong message to American allies. You should be thinking about something else. You know, it's a kind of a paradox because you sort of see a vote for Donald Trump as a vote on the, on the so-called strong horse, you know, and, and the way you're putting it, he's the beta figure here. You know, he's he's a bet on, well, our, d- the decline of our moral authority, the decline of our even even economic and, and military might. It is true that as the world becomes more geopolitically unstable, the United States is affected much less by that. Uh, I mean, ISIS, Obama, a lot of people call Obama a beta. He said ISIS was a JV team, but he said it was a JV team in terms of their threat to the United States. Mm. That's true. I mean, ISIS is an enormous problem if you're Turkey or if you're Jordan or if you're Iraq. But, you know, if you're the United States, it's not so clear, right? And so, I mean, I think that Trump is in some ways the logical extension of that to saying stop all of this stuff, focus on the United States. I mean, build a wall. What's more clear than that? You know, it's saying that we just don't need all of these international entanglements. And it's not isolationist, but it is unilateralist. It's very transactional, and it's very much a sense of if it's not benefiting us directly and now, we shouldn't be doing it. Frankly, you know, it's the way that China over the last 35 years was operating. Trump is in many ways uh, very much uh, in favor of a China-type foreign policy. You know, this thing, uh, yeah, I think at some other point you said, you know, Trump's foreign policy looks like China's foreign policy. 
you know, is it partly somehow that Trump's he sees himself in his enemy or they're playing the same game? And that's why he sees them as opponents. He certainly sees the Chinese as uh, much stronger in terms of being able to promote their economic agenda at the expense of other countries. And he wants more of that, right? If you think about it, Chinese companies are fundamentally patriotic, right? If If the Chinese government tells you to jump, you say, how high? It annoys Trump that American companies aren't more patriotic the way Chinese companies are. It clearly annoys Trump that the American media isn't more patriotic towards President-elect Trump than the Chinese media would be towards Xi Jinping. So I, mean, I, I do think there's something in that. And keep in mind, Trump is the guy that said that, you know, Putin is stronger than Obama. Well, that's true, because Putin's a dictator. Uh, Putin's also stronger than Trump. But Trump doesn't think that's a good thing. And, and he clearly does want much more authority uh, in the hands of the White House and in the hands of himself um, to convince all of these globalist multinational corporations that actually they need to pay a little bit more attention uh, to, uh, to the United States of America. You know, we had uh, Gary Kasparov on recently, and he was saying that Putin is not a good chess player because, or he isn't playing chess, because with chess, you have transparent resources. Everyone sort of knows what you have. And Putin is an, is an opponent of transparency. But instead, he's playing poker with lots of bluffing. Well, first of all, what would Kasparov know about being a good chess player? I mean, I know. He's really, like, people are just really, really just, you know, talking out of their sleeves. But yeah, so what I think is interesting there is... There's a lot of conversation about branding, like who comes across as powerful. We don't even know the extent of the resources in China and and Russia for real. And Trump doesn't talk about building up America's economic base or even its military might. He talks about refashioning the branding so that he looks more like Putin. What we do know is that Russia only expresses power effectively in a couple of ways. It's through the energy might that they have, and that's a lot weaker now that, you know, a lot of the energy is being produced by the United States, more decentralized, and of course, their military capabilities. But Putin has consolidated power under him. His institutions are very weak, and he doesn't have any domestic opposition to speak of. He doesn't have to deal with populism. So if he decides he wants to go in Syria or in Ukraine, the Americans can say, don't do that. I mean, Obama actually told Putin, cut it out in terms of the hacking. What's, what's he, his little brother, saying, stop it, don't touch <laughs> me, right? That's ludicrous. Um, the, the fact is that Putin may, be, may run a weaker government and a weaker economy, but he has the ability to call the shots, quite literally, where Obama and European leaders, uh, you know, in consolidated democracies, much more constrained, don't. And Trump is going to find that clearly very frustrating, right, when he becomes president, because suddenly, you know, he's going to have a hard time, you know, having his orders followed through on, and it's going to make him look weak, and other countries are going to be able to run circles around him. The problem he has is that he really believes that America's negotiating power globally is increasing or should increase under him. And that's just not true. That has nothing to do with who you elect. It has a lot more to do with our allies in Europe are much weaker and much more fragmented. It has to do with the fact that China's growing economically and they have alternatives that they'd actually like to promote to the United States that they're doing effectively and that the Russians have been undermining us in terms of security. Those are not things that allow you to come in and cut a better deal. 
right? And that's that's a problem for Trump. So you've sort of glancingly treated this demise of American moral authority, the sort of like the righteousness that would allow that kind of Fort Knox of America's on the right side. We have a clear vision. We have, you know, the sort of North Star of democracy in our sights that Obama used to be able to or maybe thought he was still able to say to Putin, cut it out like this is wrong. You know, this is wrong. This is, you know, not as as God gives us to see the right here. And Putin just, you know, just just flouted that. I mean, as you say, it just seemed like a little brother. What happened? What? Yeah, this is one that, that I think Trump and, uh, uh, and Putin really do see eye to eye on, uh, which is that, you know, Trump believes that Americans are just a bunch of hypocrites mm. when they tell other countries they need to act like democracies, because he'd say the U.S. doesn't really act like a democracy. He sees a lot of corruption in the U.S. Um, you know, he sees a lot of subversion, subversion of democratic principles in the U.S. A lot of other countries too, do, too. I mean, you know, in the, in, the, in the late 80s, early 90s, the East Europeans looked up to America. They saw this as the country that they wanted to emulate. You go back there now and you ask them, after the failed wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, after the 2008 financial crisis, after Guantanamo, and after, most importantly, this 2016 election, and they just don't. It's not just that America doesn't always follow through on its promises. Um, it's also that, you know, the United States doesn't lead by example very well anymore. I mean, look at how many refugees the Americans aren't taking in. You know, I mean, we have the Statue of Liberty, but it doesn't really belong in New York Harbor anymore. Uh, you know, it's kind of sad. And I, I understand why a lot of Americans say we don't want to do that. But those were the principles that America used to be able to hold up to other countries and say, be like us. This is the right way to live. We really can't do that. And one thing you can say by Trump is he may want to be a leader, but he, he's not going to lead by example. I mean, unless the example is, you know, continuing to own a multi-billion dollar co- company while you're president and having conflicts of interest in perception with literally everything you do. That, that, that's, I mean, I guess that's kind of like a leading by Saudi example or leading by South Korean example. <laughs> the U.S. is going to be just like another one of those countries. Not a shining city on the hill. Uh, a little less so. <laughs> so if we're talking about the demise of an empire, and I know we haven't quite said that yet, but is it possible that as much as Americans have liked to think and cherished the idea that in the past 50, 60 years, we've been holding the world together, maybe we haven't. Maybe we're going to find out that that there's another another order or disorder waiting in the wings that we um, you know, are sort of powerless to prevent and that we that we weren't a bulwark against to begin with. Well, let's be clear. I do not in any way think that the United States is in decline and the the strength of the American market, its economy, the attraction of the dollar, if anything, is probably going to go up because the rest of the world is going to be in much more disarray as the United States plays less of a role. Um, But American foreign policy influence is in severe decline and is not coming back. Uh, The Pax Americana is over. I think what you'll find is that it was important um, to smooth and facilitate the global economy, to have the United States with its allies setting global standards, setting a single internet that everyone, you know, sort of played by those rules of the road, it definitely facilitated more growth. Um, it facilitated easier trade. And so when the U.S. is no longer doing that, you know, in a place like the Middle East is going to fall apart more easily. Other economies are going to be a little bit less efficient. Their growth isn't going to be as great. But, I, you know, I don't think it's the end of the world. 
And, you know, in the same way that Washington may be less relevant for other countries, Washington will also be less relevant for some of the United States. And we'll find that there are an awful lot of entrepreneurial and ingenuitive Americans who find ways to get great things accomplished, even if Washington isn't much of an inspiration. Um, so um, tell me who, what, what, what might things look like when a global leader falls or a global leader? I know you don't, we don't want to talk about the sort of the nation falling, but if when leadership wanes, so like, let's think about England or other great empires who had that moral authority and then lost it to a more decentralized power or another great power. You know, what is what does say the next leader look like? Is there a number two slot for the United States in the leadership pecking order? Is there a way we might cruise into that sort of Japanese, you know, self-satisfaction of number two is not so bad? Uh, you know, there's no question that um, the Western Hemisphere, which is very stable, and, you know, our neighbors are a couple big bodies of water, there's no major, you know, sort of wars going on or likely anytime soon. Terrorism is far from it. It's not where climate change is hitting first and foremost, right? I mean, the, the U.S. has extraordinary resources in its backyard. Uh, the fact that America isn't going to be sending men and women off to war, that the U.S. isn't driving global trade, is probably not going to affect the views of the average American going forward. But I guess the biggest thing I could say is, look, we, we've we've acted in many ways as the hegemon of the global order, um, both for the Western world from 1945 until 1991, and then for the entire world once the Soviet Union collapsed for the last 25 years. And yet, a majority of Americans do not believe that they personally have benefited from that. They don't believe that the American dream applies to them anymore. They think that American leaders, and by this I don't just mean political leaders, but also intellectual leaders, media leaders, corporate leaders, you name it, have forgotten about them. And to a significant degree, they're correct. So, you know, even though it's fine for you and I to be talking about the fact that, oh, my goodness, what's going to happen if America's not the global leader anymore? It might feel bad for us living in New York City. It's not going to feel bad for the average American. And that's, that's the real question. Is what, might it feel better? better them? Might it feel better? You know, it's, it's not going to help the global, it's not going to help the American economy in the long term. Um, because of the lack of efficiency. Um, but, you know, I mean, short of the risk of going to war, short of the risk of overreacting to threats, that sort of thing, I, I, I do believe that the, the, the big cha changes that have to be made in the next few years in the United States are about addressing uh, this large group of Americans that legitimately feel left behind. And we need a social contract that works for them. We need benefits and infrastructure and training that work for them. Um, I, it's not at all clear that Trump is going to be able to, or even willing, um, to resolve those issues. But certainly, uh, that's where the hope would come from. Okay, I like that because we are heading toward a new year. Trumpcast is very bad recently at offering good news. So maybe you can tell us, though, you know, three or four things that we might expect regions in the world to keep an eye on, things we might expect, you know, with this administration, and make one at least of them not entirely desperately horrible. <laughs> well, I mean, the fact that Abe... 
uh, came over to the United States, the Japanese prime minister, and immediately sort of gave a golf club to Trump and said, hey, I want to be your buddy. Didn't even mention the fact that Trump killed his favorite Trans-Pacific Partnership deal. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it shows that the Japanese have a strong leader doesn't have to worry about populism at home, doesn't have to worry um, about you know the middle class getting hollowed out because the Japanese population is actually shrinking. Um, that relationship is going to be very solid uh, with the United States and with Trump. It won't change, in my view, really at all. You know, same thing could be said with Netanyahu and Israel. People that don't like Russia's sanctions, hey, those sanctions are probably going to go off. It's, frankly, that they, a lot of Europeans want those sanctions off. It's been hurting their economies. Now they'll have an easier time doing business with Russia. Uh, The thing that I would worry most about in the near term, given Trump, would probably be this, no surprise, the U.S.-China relationship. It's the most important bilateral relationship in the world, bar none. And uh, Trump is going to have a hard time with the fact that the Chinese can say no. We've already seen that with them grabbing this drone a few days ago. Um, they They weren't doing that before. They were sending a message, like if Trump is going to proceed with uh, questioning the one China policy, talking with the Taiwanese president, claiming that we're you know playing unfairly on tax and manipulating our currency, we are going to respond directly mm-hmm. uh, to the United States. And that can play out very badly, uh, both in the region and more broadly for the global economy. You did not heed my warning about ending on an up note. That's right. You're right. You're right. Maybe our editor can switch those around as a okay. little Christmas gift. Um, so um, thank you so much, Ian. This has been immensely interesting, given us a lot to think about over the holidays. Happy everything. And, um, and we'll have you back on Trumpcast really soon. Sure. Okay. Sounds good. Thanks. That's it for today's show. Trumpcast is produced by Jason DeLeon. He's not sure how he feels about a G0 world, but the man does like flying in a G6. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts, and he gets the point of the G20 summit, but he really just wants to know if he's getting his G4 visa in the mail anytime soon. Andy Bowers is the chief content officer at Panoply, and he notes that if you write G0 backwards, it says OG, because he's cool like that. He's cool like that? He's cool like that. I'm Virginia Heffernan. We have more episodes of Trumpcast next week. Until then, enjoy the holiday. China, 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 China steals United States Navy research drone in international waters, rips it out of the water and takes it to China in unprecedented act.